If you're using a pew Bible, you can find Daniel chapter 2 on page 690, so grab that and turn there. You can also follow along in your, in your bulletin or on the, the slides if you like, but I think it's probably helpful to have a Bible and kind of read it and start to, you know, let your brain kind of, you know, start to associate this text with, you know, the, the pages in, in the, the book itself. Daniel 2, it starts to get a little weird in Daniel chapter 2. Um, you know, a lot of Daniel's weird. Most of it is weird. There's like a couple, you know, one, three, six are like familiar stories that we might, you know, see in children's Bibles and things like that. The rest of it's all super weird. And so we're going to try to just wade through, uh, yeah, all, all the weirdness of the book of Daniel and, and figure out as best as we can what, uh, what it's talking about. Last week when we left off, uh, Daniel was uh, in the royal court in Babylon. So he... Um, uh, the, the Babylon had kind of taken over, had, had taken over, sent everyone in uh, Jerusalem into exile. He kind of got these, the, the, the best of the best, you know, young men from Jerusalem and put them into Babylonian university, as it were, to kind of train them to be Babylonians, learn their language, their culture, their literature, their art for several years. And that's kind of where we left off at the end of Daniel chapter 1 and where we are in Daniel chapter 2. In fact, that's pretty much the setting for the whole first half of Daniel. 1 through 6 is all kind of Daniel and his uh, you know, companions in the royal courts. And then at uh, 7 through 12, it kind of shifts. is mostly sees himself. It's him interacting with angels and heavenly messengers and seeing these visions. And so 1 through 6, Daniel and his companions in the royal courts. 7 through 12, uh, Daniel's visions about the things to come in human history and the things to come in all of eternity. So that's kind of a general kind of, um, you know, what to expect for the rest of the the book. Today in Daniel chapter 2, we're going to read it. It's a long uh, passage, so we're just going to read it as we go. We're not going to read it all up top. Um, But basically, King Nebuchadnezzar, the king of Babylon, has this dream or these dreams that that are troubling to him, that are, he's not able to sleep at night. He's so kind of disturbed by him and he's, it's kind of him trying to figure out what these dreams mean and and just kind of the, uh, how Daniel goes about interpreting them for him. So I am going to pray and then we're just going to dive right in and just read and kind of think about uh, Daniel chapter two uh, as, as we go. Heavenly Father, we come before you this morning um, asking your blessing on our time over these next few minutes uh, as we study your word together. God, we pray that you would teach us. We pray that you would instruct us. We pray that you would speak to us. And we pray that you would help us to see you rightly. Uh, so that we might respond to you appropriately. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. All right, chapter 2, verse 1. Let's dive in. In the second year of the reign of King Nebuchadnezzar, Nebuchadnezzar had these dreams, and his spirit was troubled, and his sleep left him. So he's, he's you know, lying awake at night, insomnia, you know, anxiety over what he's dreaming. Uh, Verse 2, the king commanded that the magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, and Chaldeans be summoned to tell the king his dreams. So they came in and they stood before before the king. Bring everyone in the kingdom uh, that that has any, that's that's in the religious field or religion-adjacent field that might be able to have some sort of access to divine revelation that can tell me what these dreams mean. Bring them all in so that they can interpret my dreams. And the king said to them, I had a dream and my spirit is troubled to know the dream. Tell me, uh, tell me my dream. Tell me what it means. Verse four, uh, and the Chaldeans, all of the, you know, the people in Babylon who kind of fit that description of, um, you know, magicians, enchanters, sorcerers, they say, O king, live forever. Tell your servants the dream and we will show the interpretation, right? We're happy to do it. This is what we get. This is our wheelhouse, man. We are dream interpreters. We're sign readers and interpreters. So you tell us what the dream is. And we will tell you uh, what it what it means. Now, um, the the king of Babylon is not having any of this. He kind of see he sees he sees maybe what he thinks is a scam, a con, right? He says. 
Uh, this word for me is firm. If you do not make known to me the dream and its interpretation, you shall be torn limb from limb and your houses shall be laid in ruins. So he says, I've got, I'm having this dream. I want to know what it means. They say, great, tell us what the dream is and we will tell you what it means. And he says, uh, not so, not so fast. Now, um, all right. So kids, kids that are here, um, we're, so let's, I'm going to try to see if we can kind of figure out what, what exactly Nebuchadnezzar is asking of the, of the people and, why, and kind of how they're, they're responding. So I've got, I've got two, uh, two propositions for any, for any kids that are here. The first one, I'll give you a dollar. This is, this is a, everyone perks up, right? Uh, I'll give your parents a dollar if they, your parents are at the discretion of whether or not you get the dollar finally. If you behave. But, so, uh, so, um, is this going to be a math problem? If you can answer it correctly, you get a dollar. Who wants to try? All right. Man, every, every single, <laughs> grown-ups are all raising their hands, too. Lucy. All right. So, math problem. You answer it right. You, if Jason and Penny say it's okay, you get a dollar. Can you answer what is 11 plus 7? 18. That's correct. 11 plus 7 is 18. So... Great job. You win a dollar if your parents authorize it after the service, depending on how well you behave. Um, all right, so that's question one. Now, the next one's a little bit harder, it's, it's, so it's worth more. This one, you, if you get this question right, you get $100. <laughs> Kid you not. No, I, I, make it $1,000. i will give you $1,000. <laughs> I'll give you $1,000 if you answer. Who wants to try this next one for $1,000? Carson. All right. This one's harder. You have, not only do you have to answer the, not only do you have to do the math problem correctly, you have to tell me what two numbers I'm thinking of and then add them together and answer the question correctly. So what two numbers am I thinking of? And then add them together and tell me what the, what the sum is. 49 and 98, so add those together. Oh, I'll just tell you, you're wrong. So it was 37 <laughs> and 6. So the total was, was 43. So, so it's way harder to, like, like, if I tell you the math problem, you can answer it and win a dollar. But if I tell you, you have to tell me the numbers that are clanging around in my brain and then add them together, it becomes much more difficult. Nice try, though, Carson. It was 1000 bucks, so it was, was going to be hard. Um, but, Lucy, I will give you a dollar. Just like I said, let me know at the end. So King Nebuchadnezzar says, right, he says, I know what you're trying to do. You're trying to get me to tell you the dream. But anyone can just make up an interpretation once you hear what the dream is. That's not that hard. Like, I only care about the interpretation from a person who has special access to divine revelation, right? A person who, who actually is hearing from God or the gods or whoever they believe in, someone who has special access to special knowledge, that's the interpretation that I'm interested in. But anyone can give me an interpretation. I'll have no way of verifying whether that's truly a, divine, a divinely inspired interpretation unless you can do this thing that's frankly really difficult, which is tell me what the dream, uh, what the dream is. So I want you to tell me the dream and its interpretation, and it's a, you know, it's a, it's a pretty high, it's, you know, the stakes are high, because he says, if you don't, I'll tear you limb from limb, and your houses shall be in ruins. So show, verse 6, show me the dream and its interpretation. Verse 7, they say, let the king, they're, they're like, you know, let the king tell his servants the dream, and then, like, look, that's too hard. Tell us the dream, we will tell you the interpretation, right? Verse, verse 8. Right? He says, you're stalling. Right? I know with certainty that you are trying to gain time because you see that the word from me is firm. If you do not make known the dream to me and the interpretation, there is but one sentence for you. You have agreed to speak lying. And he says, you're con, you're con men. You're, you're scammers. You, you've agreed to speak lying and corrupt words before me until the times change. Tell me the dream and then I shall know that you can show me its interpretation. Verse 10, the, the Chaldeans, the, the, the Babylonian enchanters and magicians, they said, there's not a man on earth who can meet this demand. No, the, there's no great and powerful king has ever asked such a thing of any magician or enchanter or Chaldean. It's impossible. The king, verse 11, the king, or the thing that the king asks is difficult and no one can show it to the king except the gods 
who's dwelling is, he's like, that's, I know, that's the point. That's why I'm doing this. I know that a regular person can't do what I'm asking them to do. And I want special insight and revelation, not from a regular person using regular knowledge, but from special divine revelation. That's the whole reason why I'm doing it. Verse 12, and the king was angry and he was very furious. And he commanded that all the wise men of Babylon be destroyed. Verse 13, so the decree went out, and the wise men who were about to be killed, they sought Daniel and his companions to kill him. Daniel, uh, Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah are, are kind of a part of this. They're, they're not Babylonian uh, or, or originally, but they are uh, in Babylon now, and they kind of are in the religion-adjacent kind of segment of, of society. And so they are kind of lumped in with all of these guys that tried and failed to tell Nebuchadnezzar his dream and, and, and interpret it. And so verse 14, Daniel replied, with prudence and discretion, right? Remember back to, to chapter one where we saw how Daniel was polite and, and kind and winsome in his demeanor with the Babylonian guards. Same thing here. He replies with prudence and with discretion to Arioch, the captain of the king's guard. And he says, uh, why is this decree, like, why do you want to kill me so bad? Why is this decree from the king so urgent? And Arioch made the matter known to Daniel. He's having this dream. Nebuchadnezzar is. He's not able to sleep. He's freaking out. He's got anxiety. He invited everyone in. Uh, he thought they were con men anyways, and then it turns out that they were. They're not able to tell him his dream. And so Daniel went in and requested that the king, him at a time, that he might show the interp- interpretation to the king. So Daniel, he knows. He knows the the gauntlet that's in front of him. You don't just have to interpret the dream. You have to tell him the dream. You have to guess right what the dream is and then tell him what the dream means. And Daniel's like, listen, like I can't do that, um, but I'm going to die either way. So I might as well give it a shot. Uh, I am not able to do it, but, uh, but my hope is that, that God will intervene, intercede for me, similar to how he did in chapter 1 with the vegetables and causing him to you know, get larger, even though he had less calories uh, over the course of, of 10 days, similar to how he's going to in chapter 3 with the fiery furnace, in chapter 6 with the lion's den. Right? Daniel is just this series of God continuing to intervene uh, in ways where if he doesn't, terrible things will happen. And he's the only one that can intervene, and God does repeatedly and over and over and over. Verse 17, Then Daniel went to his house and made the matter known to Hananiah, Mishael, and Azariah, his companions. So, so he's about to be killed by the king. He's got this like one kind of last, you know, last desperate hope of, he, of where he can, you know, somehow maybe God will reveal to him Nebuchadnezzar's dream, reveal to him the, interpret of Neb- the interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream so that he doesn't get killed. And he goes to his friends and he tells them to seek mercy from the God of heaven concerning this mystery so that he and his companions might not be destroyed with the rest of the wise men in Babylon. So on the eve of the day when Daniel's going to be killed by edict of the king, he goes to his friends and asks them to pray for him. Similar to how Jesus goes to his friends in the Garden of Gethsemane and asks them to, to pray for him and to pray that God would give mercy uh, to him in that, that kind of moment of, of need. Daniel goes and, and prays. Right, it... It's easy to overlook how, like, the, the value, the significance of prayer, of, you know, things that, that don't have right away instantaneous, tangible results that I can see and taste and touch and feel. Prayer and, and godly relationships with other believers, right? Prayer and a, a community of people who love the Lord with me and can help me to remain faithful to the Lord, those don't bring with them instantaneous results and it's easy to dismiss them it's easy to overlook them it's easy to think uh, there are far more urgent things that I need to give my time and attention to than than uh, prayer and then relationships with other believers those things are a luxury when I have the time when I have the space and I have the the margins But Daniel, like Jesus, like so many other characters in the Bible, don't see prayer and uh, relationships with other believers as a luxury to have when our 
when we have the margins in our life, but they see them as crucial, as, as mission critical, right? As, as important as the air that we breathe. You're never going to hear Daniel say, I don't have time to pray right now. You're never going to hear Daniel say, I don't have time to invite the counsel and encouragement and intercessory prayers from uh, my fellow believers right now. This is an emergency. I don't have time for those things right now. I need to do the things that actually are going to accomplish something and get things done. He recognizes that prayer and, and biblical godly community are the things that God uses to actually accomplish and get things done in the lives of his, of his people. If you adopt the world's priorities, prayer might often seem like a waste of time, like it's getting in the way of things that are more urgent and more pressing. But God doesn't adhere to those priorities. God says, I want you to stop. I want you to spend time with me and pray. I want you to read a passage of Scripture, and I want you to meditate on it. I want you to spend time in silence and solitude. Spending, you know, Spending time with other believers, building relationships with them, encouraging them and inviting them to encourage you might not feel like the most urgent thing in the world when you have other things that are pressing in on you. Other ways you could be spending your time and your, your money, and yet God says that being a part of a healthy church that preaches the gospel and where people covenant together in committed love and where people disciple one another and help one another to follow Jesus is one of the most important things that you... The spiritual disciplines don't have the bite and the zip and the urgency that so many of the things the world wants us to do have. And yet, they are far more important. And over the long run, they are far more... um, They will inform your spiritual development and how you flourish as a human being far more than any of those things that, that the world claims are more urgent. Daniel goes, he finds his friends, he prays, he asks them to pray for him. And then verse 19, the mystery is revealed. Daniel has a vision in the middle of the night. The, the, the mystery of uh, Nebuchadnezzar's dream is revealed to him. The interpretation of what the dream means is revealed to him. God has interceded, right? Uh, if, if, if God doesn't act supernaturally and give this revelation to Daniel he would get executed and die. And yet God does intercede and give this revelation to him. And so Daniel kind of erupts into this psalm of of praise in verses 20 and following. Blessed be the name of God forever and ever, to whom belong... God is the one who is wise. God is the one who is mighty. He is the, the blessed Lord, right? He changes times and seasons. He removes kings and sets up kings. He gives wisdom to the wise and knowledge to those who have understanding. So, so God is the one who uh, is the sovereign architect over. He is the one who oversees and, and is in control of the times and the seasons. Every king and kingdom that, that comes into being is ultimately under God's authority. It was instituted by God. God is not surprised by any time or season or king that comes. He's the one who made it happen. And not only is God sovereign over all things, verse 21, but God is also um, deeply involved and intimately in relationship with his people, speaking to them, revealing to them. So transcendence of God is verse 21. The imminence of God is verse 22. He reveals deep and hidden things. He knows what is in the darkness and the light dwells with him. To you, O God, of my fathers, I give thanks and praise, for you have given me wisdom and might, that you have made known to me what we asked of you, for you have made known to us the king's matter. So God is infinitely glorious. God is sovereign over all things. God is uh, intimately uh, re- you know, in relationship with and speaks to his people. And then because of that, I am going to respond with worship and thanksgiving and praise. I'm going to exalt God for who he is because of how he has saved me and interceded for me. Verse 24, then Daniel went to Arioch, whom the king had appointed to destroy the wise men of Babylon. He went and he said this to him, do not destroy the wise men of Babylon. Bring me in before the king and I will show the king the interpretation. Verse 25, then Arioch brought in Daniel 
before the king in haste and said to him, I have found among the exiles from Judah a man who will make known to the king the interpretation. The king declared to Daniel, whose name was Belteshazzar, Are you able to make known to me the dream that I have seen and its interpretation? And Daniel uh, answered the king and said, No wise man, no enchanter, no magician, no astrologer can show the king the mystery that the king has asked. But there is a God in heaven who reveals mysteries, and he has made known to, to King Nebuchadnezzar what will be in the latter days. So Daniel reiterates what the magicians and enchanters said. They said, none of us, this is impossible. No person can tell you this, King. That's a, an absurd ask. Why are you even doing The only person who can do something like that is God. And Daniel says, no one can do this. The only person who can do something like that is God. It just so happens that I know God. I speak regularly with God. I pray to God. God reveals himself to me. He says, your dream and your visions in your head as you lay in bed are these. To you, O king, uh, as you lay in bed, the thoughts of what would come after this, he who reveals mysteries has made known to you what is to be. God, God, your dream, Nebuchadnezzar, whether you realize it or not, is about the, the, the arc of human history that's coming uh, from right now on into, into eternity. But as for me, this mystery has been revealed to me, not because of any wisdom that I have more than all the living, but in order that the interpretation may be known to the king, that you may know the thoughts on your mind. He says, he says I, I didn't know this. I, I'm not telling you your dream and the interpretation because I... I am particularly smart or perceptive or spiritually intuitive. I'm telling you this because God revealed it to me. And God revealed it to me so that you can know what your dream means, so that you can know that he is the sovereign God who is, the, you know, who is in charge of and sovereign over everything in the, in the world. Daniel is quick to take the credit and the glory that other people want to give to him and redirect it and give it to God instead of keeping it for himself. Verse 31, you saw, O king, and behold, a great image, a huge statue, an idol, right? You saw this massive image, mighty and exceeding brightness. It stood before you and its appearance was frightening. The head of the image was fine gold. Its chest and arms were silver. Its middle and thighs were bronze. Its legs were iron. Its feet were partly of iron and partly of clay. And as you looked, a stone was cut by no human hand, And it struck the image on its feet of iron and clay and broke them to pieces. And then the iron and the clay and the bronze and the silver and the gold all together were broken into pieces. And they became like chaff of the summer threshing floors. And the wind carried them away so that not a trace of them could be found. But the floors, or not could be found, but the stone that struck the image became a great mountain and filled the entire earth. So that's Nebuchadnezzar's dream. Massive statue, gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay. And then a stone that's, that's not cut with human hands, so a natural stone just from the, the ground that no human hand has ever touched or, or carved or shaped comes and smashes that statue, breaks it into a bajillion smithereens, and then it all just blows away. And then that stone grows and becomes a massive mountain and fills the entire earth. That's the, that's the dream that Daniel's having, that he's like, I don't know what this means, I don't know why I keep seeing it, but I can't sleep, it's freaking me out. Verse, six, verse 36, he says, This was the dream, and now we will tell the king its interpretation. You, O king, the king of kings, to whom God of heaven has given the kingdom, the power and the might and the glory, and into whose hands he has given wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over everything. You, Nebuchadnezzar, you are the head of gold. That statue that you saw with the head of gold, you're the head of gold. Another kingdom inferior to you shall arise after you. And then a third kingdom of bronze, which shall rule over all the earth. And then there should be a fourth kingdom, strong as iron, because iron breaks to pieces and shatters all things. And like iron that crushes, it shall break and crush everything. And as you saw the feet and the toes, partly of potter's clay and partly of iron, it shall be a divided kingdom. But some of the firmness of iron shall be in it, just as you saw iron mixed with a soft clay. And as the toes of the feet were partly iron and partly clay, so the kingdom shall be partly strong and partly brittle. 
And you saw the iron mixed with soft clay, and so they will mix with one another in marriage, but they will not hold together, just as iron does not mix with clay. And in the days of those kings, the the God of heaven will set up a kingdom that shall never be destroyed, nor shall the kingdom be left to another people. It shall break into pieces all of these kingdoms and bring them to an end, and it shall stand forever, just as you saw that a stone was cut from a mountain by no human hand, and that it broke in pieces the iron, the bronze, the clay, the silver, and the gold. So, According to Daniel, this dream about the statue, gold, silver, bronze, iron, clay, is, is representative of human history. Each segment of the statue, comprised of different metals and materials, represents different kingdoms that arise during the course of human history. It's interesting, they, so they start with, starts with gold, works its way down to uh, clay. So, like chronologically, like from from top to, top to bottom, gold, silver, bro- like the, according to, to Nebuchadnezzar's dream from God, the trajectory of human history it's, it works its way progressively from gold to just dirt, right? Like, like if you ask um, if you ask a secular historian, scientist, you know, whatever it is, right? They're going to tell you that, that humanity is, we're getting better and better, right? We have, we have, we started long ago as Neanderthals and, and now we're, you know, technology is getting better. People are smarter. We're conquering more things, accomplishing more things, running faster, jumping higher, Right? You know, we've worked our way all the way from way back then when we were, you know, just, you know, totally backwoods all the way to yours truly, right? Like the smartest guy that's ever walked on the face of the, of the, the planet. And that's how, that's how secularism sees history, right? It kind of works its way from dirt up to the gold standard that we are today. God, Psalm 2 says that God sits enthroned in heaven and looks at humanity and just laughs. He thinks it's hilarious, right? God says, you are not evolving, you are devolving. You are, you are getting uh, worse and worse and less. You know, you're going from gold uh, to, to dirt, and I am not impressed with you. So the statue works from gold down to, to clay. It starts with starts with Nebuchadnezzar and Babylon, this glorious uh, kingdom Right with with you know all kinds of you know you know all kinds of wealth and and you know glorious thi- you know uh, yeah, glorious things that they have, that they have built and they have uh, accomplished and that's really the only kingdom that's named specifically in chapter uh, two. So we're going to see other kingdoms named specifically and kind of throughout the rest of the book of Daniel and we can kind of make some educated guesses as to what the other kingdoms are here in chapter 2 but the only one that is explicitly mentioned is is that one Nebuchadnezzar Babylon is the the first one and so uh, you've got Babylon Nebuchadnezzar is the head of gold Um, the the most kind of throughout church history the 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 most uh, you know the majority of of interpreters have kind of said that Babylon is the head of gold the um the chest and arms of silver is Medo-Persia, the next kind of world empire that was going to, to kind of succeed Babylon. The one after that, the thighs of bronze is Greece, ancient Greece, and then the legs of iron is the Roman Empire. So that seems to be the, what most scholars, uh, how they kind of interpret these based on what we see in the rest of Daniel and throughout the rest of the, the Bible. Some guys don't. Remember last week I said that there are uh, some folks who, who date Daniel significantly later. Instead of in the 6th century when Daniel would have lived and, and kind of been in the royal courts, uh, there are guys that date Daniel uh, way later in the 2nd century, and it's because they say, well, Daniel has all of these specific prophecies that, that no, there's no way Daniel could have known them in the 6th century. No one would have known them unless they were writing in the 2nd century. 
So, uh, again, I, I reject that dating uh, hypothesis because I believe in supernatural revelation. But those guys that date Daniel in the second century, they have a problem because they're like, uh, the, the, the legs of iron can't represent the Roman Empire because the Roman Empire hadn't come about by the second century. So they're like, we need to, we need to reinterpret uh, these different kingdoms in some way so that none of them represent Rome because the, f- the fake guy who's lying and saying that he's Daniel in the second century would not have, wouldn't have known what Rome is, so he couldn't have possibly written about Rome. So they'll interpret it in different ways. But I think the safest and what's probably the, the, you know, the best guess is that we're looking at Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and, and Rome. And those, kind of, those can kind of, you know, track a little bit with the particular uh, empires, right? Like I said, the, the, the head of gold, the Babylonian empire, this massive kingdom with power and, and glory. In fact, uh, um, Daniel's description of, uh, of King Nebuchadnezzar, right, when he says that, uh, you know, you've been, um, you know, given dominion over, let's see, it says you've been given, uh, into your hand was given to wherever they dwell, the children of man, the beasts of the field, the birds of the heavens, making you rule over them all, you're the head of gold. Sounds a lot like uh, what God says to Adam in the Garden of, of Eden, right? That God uh, gives Adam dominion and tasks him with ruling on his behalf over the fish of the sea, the birds of the heavens, the livestock, all of the earth, right? So, so uh, um, Nebuchadnezzar is almost pictured as uh, a, a, a type of Adam, right? A, a, another kind of version of Adam, just as, just as Adam was given authority to rule and then ultimately failed in his exercise of that authority. So too, Nebuchadnezzar is given authority to rule and fails in his uh, ability to exercise that authority. So his kingdom eventually gives way. The gold head gives way to a silver chest with two arms. And so if that represents Medo-Persia, the next empire, then it kind of makes sense because there's two arms. And so presumably one represents uh, the country of Media and one represents the country of Persia that together were joined to kind of make this, this empire, which then gives way to the, uh, the, the thighs of bronze, which Daniel says specifically that they, um, you know, this, this, the, the bronze empire would rule the entire earth which is effectively what happened in ancient Greece, right? Under um, Alexander the Great, right? He had this massive kingdom that spread probably far than any kingdom uh, had up until that point. And so um, seems, to, seems to comport with, align with the, the thighs of bronze, which then gives way to uh, the Roman Empire, the legs of iron, strong as iron, which again, uh, seems to comport with the, what we know of the Roman Empire, huge army, massive army funded by uh, oppressive, exploitative tax dollars and tribute that's extracted from all of the people that they conquer. And they've got this massive army, strong as iron. Scholars point out that each uh, metal from head all the way down to the feet gets progressively less, you know, gold, silver, bronze, iron. So they, they each get less and less precious, which might symbolize the moral decay that you can kind of see going from one empire to the next in human history. They're getting less and less, yeah, they're, they're just becoming more and more uh, immoral and, and idolatrous. But they're each getting tougher and stronger. And so each uh, of these successive kingdoms, Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, uh, was a little bit more resilient and lasted longer than the ones that came uh, before it. But specifically with the fourth kingdom, if it's the Roman Empire, it mentions that it's made of iron, it shatters everything to pieces, which is, again, what Rome did with its powerful army. But it says that as the kingdom progresses, it's not made exclusively of iron, but it's made of iron mixed with clay. So, so in one sense, this uh, fourth kingdom will be as strong as any kingdom that's ever come uh, before it ever. But in another sense, it will also be brittle and vulnerable, and the, the vulnerability and the strength won't fuse together properly, like as, as permanently as they would like, which a lot of scholars think is an apt description of the Roman Empire, 
which was a huge kingdom, kind of like Greece that came before it, uh, of a bunch of diverse people. There weren't, uh, it wasn't as homogenous. It didn't have as many kind of core beliefs that were holding everyone together. So a lot of people, a lot of civilizations with a lot of different beliefs that weren't all necessarily united together around a common belief or a common uh, philosophy. But they're all part of Rome, whether they like it or not. And eventually, the empire, because of that, it dissolves. It can't hold uh, together. And we see the fall of the Roman Empire in uh, several centuries following uh, the birth and life and death of of Christ. And so you've got, uh, presumably, you've got Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, and Rome. And then you've got this non-human kingdom, right? This this, this, uh, totally separate, totally different kingdom, a rock that's kind of carved from a mountain, uh, but not with human hands. And it comes and it smashes this idol to pieces. And then it itself grows into a huge mountain that fills the whole earth. Which is representative of God's eternal kingdom. Right? All the, all the human kingdoms are represented by precious metals. Right? They want to be fancy and they want to be impressive, but God seems utterly unconcerned with appearing to be fancy and impressive. God, God, God's kingdom is not uh, you know, posturing to try to look impressive, but God's kingdom is itself this sturdy, unbreakable uh, rock. A rock that's not cut by human hands. So, you know, this idea of a rock not cut by human hands is a theme we can trace through Scripture. Jesus himself, the Messiah, is referenced as a rock. Uh, Isaiah chapter uh, chapter 8 describes the Messiah as a stone of offense and a rock of stumbling. So God's Messiah that's going to come and overtake the human kingdoms that stand in rebellion to God is pictured as a rock. A rock that's going to crush God's enemies. A rock that God's enemies are going to trip over and fall over and, and be overcome by. So Jesus, the Messiah, is a rock. But specifically, he's not a rock that's, um, you know, imp- that looks all that impressive. He's not a rock that's been chiseled specifically and intentionally to look perfect and symmetrical, right? Isaiah 53, Jesus had no form or majesty that we should look at him, no beauty that we should desire him. So he's plain looking, kind of like a rock that's just a regular plain rock that's not been shaped or fashioned to look special. In Exodus chapter 20, when God is instructing the Israelites on how to build an altar to offer sacrifices to God on, he says, you shall make for me an altar of earth and sacrifice your offerings on it, but if you make an altar of stones, do not build it with dressed Stones. Don't build it with stones that have been shaped and fashioned by human hands because you'll defile it if you use a tool on it. If you build an altar to God, it has to be of stones, of rocks that you get from the ground that weren't cut by human hands. You also can't build it uh, very tall that have steps that you go up on the altar because I don't want your nakedness to be exposed as you walk up it to offer a sacrifice to God. So the big rule for building an altar to offer sacrifices to God in ancient Israel, the big rule seems to be don't make it fancy. Like, don't make it fancy. Don't make it try to look good. Right? The, 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 if you try to spend all of your time shaping and fashioning these rocks and building a really tall, high altar, if you do that, then your altar is going to be a testament to you and how impressive you are and how artistic you are and how rich you are that you were able to afford it instead of making much of God, the person that you're offering sacrifices to. So don't use rocks that were cut by, just use regular, plain, old rocks that weren't cut with a human hand. God is not impressed by our attempts to, you know, make things that look cool. Nor is God concerned with impressing us or or being someone who, you know, God doesn't care about gold and precious metals and fancy stones and fancy shapes. He's a rock that is not uh, made by human hands. And then that rock comes and it crushes and destroys this idol that represents all of the human kingdoms, right? All of the human pride and rebellion, right? From, from Adam and, and Cain and the, the uh, Tower of Babel on throughout all of human history. All of the human pride and rebellion and look at me and look at this kingdom that I have built. All of that, the, the, the Messiah, the rock from God comes and crushes it and destroys it. 
So starting with Babylon, there's going to be a series of human kingdoms that are all going to have varying degrees of glory and splendor and varying degrees of strength and resilience. Like Babylon and Medo-Persia and Greece uh, and Rome. And then this divine from heaven, not from human hands, unassuming, plain-looking rock. This carpenter from Galilee is going to smash and crush that uh, you know, empire and the, the empires that came before it and establish his kingdom. Right, bunch of human kingdoms, and then the Messiah, the rock that is going to crush them and establish his eternal kingdom forever and ever. So, so does Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream sound at all like what we read in the rest of the Old Testament, the, New Te- the rest of what we've seen play out in human history? It seems like he kind of nailed it. A series of human kingdoms a series of people standing in prideful rebellion against God that are eventually one day going to be crushed by God's Messiah when he returns to set up his kingdom forever. Now there's a lot of there's a lot of interpretation like there's a lot of inter- with the book of Daniel by and large but with this part in particular there's a lot of interpretations that get really granular. There's guys that you know most of them are written by the you know the guys with the rapture charts the guys, who, the guys who didn't get credit cards because they thought it was the mark of the beast. They were afraid that like, you'd get your forehead scanned like a jar of mayonnaise at the grocery store to, to check out. So uh, a lot of, lot of interpretations that get really, really granular about what everything in Daniel, right? The, the big toe on the left foot is the Roman emperor, so-and-so, and the pinky toe on the right foot is this guy that's going to be born in New Jersey. And he, you know... And so... So I'm not, you know, I'm not super convinced of a lot of the really granular, detail, in, detailed interpretations of these things because I don't know that we have the, the details to, to do it, right? The, the only things that we can know for sure are kind of what we've read, that the first one is Babylon, and then there's a series of kingdoms. We can make some educated guesses about what those are, but uh, we can't really nail down exactly, you know, uh, like get too into the weeds about all of the all of the details. So that's worth mentioning as well. Another, de- another just point of interpretation that's worth mentioning and considering is that if we track out Daniel's, his through line, right? Babylon, Medo-Persia, Greece, Rome, and then Rome is when the, the rock from God comes and shatters this, this empire. I mean, that all seems to track. Those empires came on the heels of one another, and Jesus, the Messiah, was born uh, during the Roman Empire. So everything seems to track, except uh, Daniel says that this rock destroys the statue and then establishes his kingdom forever and ever. But th- so it's like he, he skipped some stuff. Right? Like D- Daniel's interpretation seems to skip everything from... Jesus arriving during the Roman Empire, which happened. But then it says, immediately then, at that moment, Jesus establishes his eternal kingdom, which presumably hasn't happened yet, right? We haven't, there's nothing in Daniel's interpretation of Nebuchadnezzar's dream that talks about anything from like year 3033 till now, right? Like there's no mention of Roman Catholicism or cars, or iPhones, right? Like it's, so, so there's this like so there's this big part of human history, the last two thousand years, that don't seem to be mentioned or anticipated by Daniel, which is worth just acknowledging and 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 thinking about, lest we you know come away from this chapter wondering if it was an error or a mistake. I would submit that it's not so much an error or a mistake, rather than rather that it's a function of how Old Testament prophecy just works in this chapter and in most of the chapters in the entire Old Testament. Old Testament prophecy uh, often looks forward into the future, sometimes the near future, right? Like the life uh, or the years following the life of the, the prophet himself, something in the Old Testament. Sometimes it looks further into the future to the, the, the life of Jesus, right? There, there's prophecies about Jesus and his birth and his life and his death. Sometimes it looks into the way future, things that are still future, the end of the age, like when Jesus returns and establishes his uh, eternal kingdom. 
And the tricky thing about a lot of the Old Testament is that a lot of those prophecies, near and far, are all interspersed with one another. And the prophets don't necessarily know, they don't, they don't feel an obligation to say, this is the first coming of Jesus, and this is the second coming of Jesus. They just kind of give a lot of this prophetic data about what the Messiah is going to, to do. One, one interpreter likens it to, like if you look at a, a mountain range in the distance, and you see uh, what appears to be one single mountaintop, but then the closer that you get to it, you start to realize that it's two mountaintops, and there's a huge valley in between them. And so you're looking at one mountaintop, miles and miles of valley, and then another mountaintop. But from the perspective of you way back over here, it looked like one mountaintop, one, one mountain with one, with one peak. And he says that's kind of how Old Testament prophecy works. They'll, they'll talk about the day of the Lord, when God is going to come from heaven and rescue his people and judge his enemies and set up his eternal kingdom. And part of that happened when Jesus came during the Roman Empire, it was inaugurated, but part of it didn't happen until Jesus returns at the end of the age when it's finally consummated. And so Old Testament prophecy just tends to, to work uh, like that. And so um, we can kind of see that happening here in this text, right? This, this rock that's going to come and destroy the human kingdoms, it comes during the Roman Empire. Jesus came during the Roman Empire, but it doesn't ultimately finally finish what it's doing until the end of the age, which is something that has not happened Yet. Verse 46. Then Nebuchadnezzar fell on his face and paid homage to Daniel and commanded that an offering and incense be offered to him. The king answered that uh, the king answered and said to Daniel, Truly your God is the God of gods and the Lord of Lords. He's a revealer of mysteries, and you have been able to reveal this history, this mystery to me. Right? I love Daniel's God. I want us all to worship Daniel's God. And then the king gave Daniel high honors and many great gifts, and he made him ruler over the whole province of Babylon and the chief prefect over all the wise men of Babylon. Daniel made a request of the king to make Shadrach and Meshach and Abednego uh, over the affairs of the province of Babylon. Daniel is vindicated as a man who truly hears from and speaks for the God of the universe. God himself is vindicated as someone who is sovereign over everything. Daniel is put in charge of everything, kind of like how... Uh, Joseph was put in charge in, in Egypt in the book of, of Genesis, and that's just where we uh, leave off here in chapter 2 and where we'll, we'll pick up next week in uh, chapter 3. A couple quick points of application before we close in prayer. Right, a story like this just raises the question, why it's in the Bible. Like, why, why is this dream and this interpretation included? What's the, what, what's the point of it? Right? Is it, you know, is this text simply here to indulge our curiosity, right? To give us some sort of special insight so that we can interpret, you know, the things that we watch on the news and know whether the, you know, the end of the world is coming sooner or, or later. Is it there so that we can you know, figure out exactly what it means and argue with other Christians about why our interpretation is right and theirs is, is not. I would, I would submit to you that prophecy is in the Bible, not for any of that. Prophecy is in the Bible to point to and to reiterate and to remind you that God is sovereign over all of human history. God is not subject to what human beings do. He doesn't react to it. He's not surprised by it. God is sovereign over all of human history, everything that has ever happened. All of history unfolds at God's discretion because God allows it according to God's perfect plan. It's easy. It is easy to get beat down distracted by the world and miss the bigger picture that God is the one who rules over everything. Think about it. Daniel and his friends are about to be killed and Daniel doesn't even bat an eye, right? He knows that God is sovereign over everything. He's sovereign over human history. He's sovereign over his life. He's sovereign over what happens in his life. And in your life, you are going to experience 
intense suffering. You are going to be faced with difficult situations like Daniel. And those situations are opportunities to remember and to trust in the sovereignty of God over all things. He knows the end from the beginning. He declares the end from the beginning. And he can be trusted to take care of you as history unfolds according to his perfect plan. So one point of application is just the sovereignty of God. And another is the sufficiency of God. The the beauty of God, the glory of God, the the betterness of God than anything else. Right? At first glance, you look at the idol, the statue, and oh, like which one is the best? Is it the gold? Is that that's more precious, more expensive? Is it the iron that's stronger and more resilient? Which one is the best? But in the end, all of those get smashed to pieces and, and God's kingdom the person and work of Jesus, this like rock from heaven that doesn't look all that impressive, doesn't look all that valuable, overcomes all of that and then itself grows into a huge mountain and lasts forever. If you, if you spend your life chasing after the gold and the silver and the things of this world, money, power, success, approval, affirmation, status. If you spend your life chasing after all of the things that the world offers, it's going to amount to nothing and you're going to die with nothing. And you'll regret that you did. It's going to be crushed and it's going to be blown away like chaff in the wind. Or you can take hold of the one thing that will never ever fade, will never ever pass away, and that is Christ. That is, right, this, this eternal rock from heaven that does not look all that impressive, right? No form or majesty that we should look at him or desire him, but, but trusting in Jesus and knowing Jesus and having a relationship with Jesus and having your sins forgiven by Jesus because he was condemned in your place and died on the cross to pay the penalty for your sins. That is, I mean, the, the, the rock that becomes the mountain that fills the earth is far better than any of the precious metals kingdoms that came before it. And knowing Christ is far better and far more glorious than anything that the world can offer you. God is sovereign over all of human history so you can trust him to fulfill his purposes and take care of you. And God is sufficient and better than anything else. And so take hold of him and hold fast to him and treasure him for all of eternity. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, we thank you that you are sovereign, that you, that you literally hold the entire universe in your hand. Everything that happens, happens because you will for it to happen. So we thank you for your sovereignty. Lord, we pray that we could trust in you instead of trusting in ourselves. We pray that we could delight in you instead of chasing after the things that the world offers. Because we recognize that those things will be broken to pieces and carried away like chaff in the wind. And only what is made not by human hands will endure. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen.